0: Our gracious God and Father, we come to you today with hearts of worship because you are the God who made all things. You are the creator and you are also the redeemer. We are thankful, so thankful for the great work that you have accomplished through your son, Jesus. And we thank you for the work of your spirit And we pray for your Holy Spirit's presence today to minister to us, to take the things that we hear from Dr. Netlin and apply them to our lives. We do pray above all things that in everything that is said and done, you will be glorified. And so we commit this day to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing praises to our great God this morning.
1: Bless the Lord. we
2: Well, good morning. Good morning and welcome to each and every one of you. I'm very excited about the day and I'm just very pleased that you've put out an effort and have taken time out of your busy schedules to be to be part of it with us today. My name is Franklin Vandermeulen and I'm privileged to serve as the director of intercultural studies at Heritage College and Seminary. I'm taking courses at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, just north of Chicago. One of the reasons I was drawn to the school was because they have a a solid evangelical history and a missions history, and there are a lot of people who have written some theological, scholarly, and missiological books that are on faculty there. And Dr. Harold Netland is one of them, and it's been my privilege to go to class with him and to meet him as an author and then to sit in class and learn from him as a, te- as a teacher, but then also just to develop a bit of a relationship with, relationship with him as a friend. And I'm just really pleased that he's here today and looking forward to our time together. At this time, I just want to say, though, if you don't have the notes that were available, Keith Edwards is here, you can just raise your hand. If you would prefer to be digital, you can go to discoverheritage.ca slash MLD. Ministry Leadership Day, and they're there, and you can work with them in that regard. A marathon is a race that's 42 kilometers long, and so a half marathon by definition is 21 kilometers. So imagine being at the starting line of a half marathon, and you're realizing, I'm about to run 21 kilometers, and the gun goes off, and the crowd starts to move, and you're on the way. And you get into the rhythm of running, and you pass these markers. And at one point, you pass a marker that says 11 kilometers. And so you say to the person running behind you or beside you, well, we're just over halfway. And she turns and says, what do you mean? You said, well, the race is 21 kilometers, and we've just passed the 11-kilometer mark. We have 10 to go. And she says, well, the half marathon was yesterday. Today's the full marathon. And you're put in the awkward position of realizing that even though you've just run more than half the race, the distance you have yet to run is even more than you had to run when you started the race. That's a little bit what it's like to go to class with Dr. Netland. (laughs) So you get a listing of the courses from the school and you think, oh, that's a really good topic. That's a field of study that I really need to learn about. So you register and you go to class and after a couple of days, he's teaching you a whole bunch of stuff about this field of knowledge that you want to learn. But he also introduces other fields of knowledge that you didn't even know were fields of knowledge. So you're learning about things you don't know and then you realize there's a whole bunch of stuff you didn't know that you know. So by the time the week is over, not only have you, despite the fact that you've learned a lot, you actually feel like you learned, you know less than you did at the beginning of the week. But that's a really good thing. Because if we feel like we're perhaps not any smarter, I do feel like we're a little bit more humble. Or we have reasons to be humble. And we're a little bit more wise about how to engage the world around us. Because the world is increasingly complex. And the dynamics, the religious dynamics we face in Canada are complex. But having gone to class at TEDS and particularly with Dr. Netland, I feel like we leave class with a lot more confidence regarding the gospel and competence regarding sharing the gospel. And confidence in the gospel of Christ because it is sufficient, as Paul says, to rescue people from the power, to turn people from darkness to light, and to rescue them from the power of uh, Satan and bring them into the kingdom of God. So I hope you brought good shoes with you this morning because we're about to get started. And would you please join me in welcoming Dr. Harold Netland? <laughs>
3: thank you Frank Frank. Um, Wow really a full marathon today okay Uh, it is really an honor to be with you here uh, today and I want to thank the president and the dean the faculty um, for the invitation to be with you Uh, it was delightful to wake up this morning and see blue sky uh, we've had quite a winter in Chicago, and I know you have here too, so uh, spring is coming. I don't know when, but it is coming. I've been invited to uh, share some thoughts on the subject of ministry and Christian witness in uh, contexts that are becoming increasingly diverse and polarized. Um, I don't need to tell you, the world today is not the same as the world of the 1950s, let alone Uh, Earlier, uh, things are changing rapidly uh, at astonishing rates, and uh, societies are becoming very diverse, Uh, certainly the case in the U.S., and much more so up here in Canada. I think this has lots of implications for how we ought to be thinking about ministry and uh, practicing ministry, and I hope to explore some of these issues with you in the four talks today today. Um, I don't have all the answers. I may not have any of the answers, but uh, the first step is to clarify the questions and uh, begin to probe, uh, in light of God's Word and the guidance of the Spirit, uh, how we ought to be thinking about these things. Uh, So, first I'll begin by giving a quick uh, overview of some of the uh, changes in the religious landscape, primarily in in the U.S., Uh, I am American, I'm more familiar with the U.S. than I am with Canada, but I uh, suspect that at least some of what I have to say about these changes will be uh, appropriate to uh, the Canadian context as well. Uh, Next, we'll look at uh, a particular challenge that comes in the form of religious pluralism. What is that? Why is that a challenge? And uh, it's not the only challenge out there today, On the one hand, you have the trend towards pluralism at the very same time, you have trends moving in the other direction, uh, linking religion with ethnicity or nationalism, uh, populism, so uh, counter-modernizing, counter-globalizing trends that are pulling uh, society in the other direction. Third talk, right after lunch, uh, we'll turn to the subject of Islam, and... uh, I don't need to tell you that uh, Islam is a controversial and uh, complicated subject uh, for Christians today. Uh, I'll be looking at one particular question or facet of that uh, nexus of issues, Uh, the question that often is framed in terms of do Christians and Muslims worship the same God. And uh, essentially I'll say that's the wrong question. We need to break that question down into sub-questions and uh, tackle the sub-questions on their own terms. And then we will finish up later this afternoon, God willing, uh, by thinking together about some general principles. Uh, Where do we go from here? Uh, How do we minister in this kind of a context? Uh, First, let me just say a few very brief words about my own background. Uh, Not because it's all that interesting, but because I think it helps to uh, set the stage for how I approach uh, these questions. Uh, I was born in Japan. My parents were missionaries. Uh, I grew up in the far northern part of Japan, if anyone is familiar, Aomori up in the Tohoku. And uh, very rural, farming, fishing, uh, in the 60s and 70s, it did not share in the economic boom in Japan, and so very poor uh, compared to the rest of the country, extremely traditional, Uh, Very animistic, Uh, a a mix of popular Shinto, Buddhist, uh, polytheistic, animistic um, uh, framework. And in Japan in general, 1% identify as Christians, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, anything. Uh, Up in that part of Japan, it's even less. So my father was involved in church planting. And also started a Christian camping ministry. Uh, But any given Sunday, uh, you could expect anywhere from 25, maybe up to 30, uh, to sometimes it was only our own family in church. And so even as a child growing up, you're aware of the fact that you're different. Uh, Most Japanese aren't in church. They're doing other things. And of course, shrines and temples everywhere. And so the the issue of uh, being religiously different was something that even as a child, uh, I was aware of. I didn't know the terms, of course, but you're aware of uh, the fact and the issues. Uh, So that has shaped how I approach some of these issues. What should we be thinking about religious minorities in American or Canadian societies? Uh, It's very different when you're part of the 1% and not these. 60, 70, 80 uh, percent. Later, I did uh, doctoral work uh, under John Hick, and in the next talk, we'll talk a little bit more about him. Um, at the time, he had been an Orthodox uh, theologian and philosopher. At the time, he was a thorough pluralist, abandoned every vestige of uh, Orthodox theology, and uh, He pushed me to think about these kinds of issues in a much more rigorous and uh, uh, sometimes deeply disturbing way. Then my wife and I went back to Japan for 10 years, worked in Japan with the Japanese church, uh, the Japanese University, and I taught at a a theological college. We came to uh, Trinity in 1993, and uh, over the past 25 years, I've been involved in a variety of contexts uh, in the U.S., Uh, where I engage with students and uh, faculty uh, who themselves are very pluralistic. And so that's the background, that's the bigger context out of which I approach these issues. Um, Well, uh, we could spend time looking at a lot of statistics on the changes in American religious landscape and the Canadian religious landscape, Uh, Pew Research on Religion has terrific resources. If you're not familiar with that, I encourage you to uh, Google it and become familiar with them. Uh, I won't take time to rehearse those statistics here. Uh, But the trend is clear. Uh, The trend is clear. There is uh, an identifiable decline in the number of Americans and Canadians who self-identify as Christians, Protestant or Catholic, uh, arise in the percentage of those who identify as nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Uh, not the Catholic order, but uh, those who, when you mark the box, you just say none of the above. And uh, the none of the above category is very interesting because it includes anything from explicit atheists to spiritual but not religious, uh, and some who... Um, when you come to looking at their actual beliefs, seem to be fairly orthodox, but they will have nothing to do with the institutional church. And so it's a very elastic category. Uh, But in both Canada and the U.S., it is a a growing category and one we need to take more seriously. Uh, Let me just read a paragraph, though, from a Pew report that studied um, the American landscape in 2007 and compared it with 2014, so a seven-year period uh, where they marked this kind of decline. And here's their summarizing uh, paragraph, conclusion. The Christian share of the U.S. population is declining, while the number of U.S. adults who do not identify with any organized religion is growing. Moreover, these changes are taking place across the religious landscape, affecting all regions of the country and many demographic groups. While the drop in Christian affiliation is particularly pronounced among young adults, it is occurring among Americans of all ages. The same trends are seen among whites, blacks, and Latinos, among both college graduates and adults with only a high school education, and among women as well as men. Now when you see change represented in a wide swath of the demographics like that, That's significant. It's not just happening among one uh, subset. The the actual numbers of uh, followers of other religions in the U.S. remains uh, quite small. Uh, And yet the perception that America is a religiously diverse nation is is strong and is uh, growing. Uh, And I think there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, one reason is uh, uh, the changing immigration patterns uh, so that we're aware of peoples from uh, South Asia, uh, Africa, Latin America uh, in the American landscape in ways that we weren't previously. And sadly, uh, we're going through a, a period of, I think, uh, very unhealthy uh, polarization over that issue. But the perception often is, Well, the immigrants are all non-Christians. Actually, a lot of them are Christians, Catholics or Protestant Pentecostals. Uh, Another reason for this perception that it's becoming much more diverse is the media coverage. And so uh, the media highlights the uh, diversity, uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But it can give the impression that the society actually is much more diverse than it is. The total numbers of Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, Sikhs, and so on in the US is really quite small. Um, but there is a wide swath of diverse groups uh, represented there. My understanding is Canada is even more diverse, and the rate of uh, a decline in identifying with the established church here is even. Uh, greater than it is in the U.S., but I don't need to uh, uh, remind you about the situation here. Let me quote another uh, sociologist who has done study on uh, American religion, Mark Chaves, and uh, he points out that Not only are the demographic numbers changing, the the, uh, ways in which we think about other religions are also changing. And so Mark Chaves, writing in 2011, says, quote, three-quarters of Americans say yes when asked if they believe that there is any religion other than their own that offers a true path to God. Seventy percent say that religions other than their own can lead to eternal life. Not only are Christians in the United States less likely now to say that their religion provides the only path to truth or salvation, but people in general also are more appreciative of religions other than their own, and they are less tolerant of intense religiosity of any sort. Putting this all together, we might say that even in the midst of high levels of religious belief and practice in American society, there is declining confidence in the special status of one's own religion. So there Chaves is getting at what we might call more the soft contours of uh, the religious landscape. It's not just the hard numbers, but even among those who self-identify as Christians or as evangelicals, how do you think about religious diversity? Uh, What about other religions? And he's noticing uh, clear shifts there. Let me also mention one more sociologist, uh, Robert Withnow at Princeton. Uh, I really recommend, uh, uh, Withnow tends to look at American society, uh, but uh, again, much of what he says I think has broader application. And uh, looking at American society from the, the 1960s onward toward the end of the uh, 20th century into the 21st century, uh, he charts what he calls a change from A uh, discourse about religion to a discourse about spirituality, a spirituality of seeking, a spirituality of journey. And uh, the discourse about religion is uh, off-putting. Religion is hard, it's cold, it's authoritarian, it's oppressive, it's dogmatic, um, it's not open to other alternatives. Spirituality, by contrast, is Uh, fluid and flexible. It's creative. It's tolerant. Uh, It has fresh insights from other cultures, from other traditions. It celebrates doubt. Uh, The study, just just tracking the uh, language and the discourse on doubt can be interesting. Not that long ago, doubt in religion was regarded as a bad thing. Uh, You want to have certainty. Uh, If you're doubting, you want to overcome that. Uh, What Withno and his colleagues have charted is uh, things change in the late 20th century. Uh, Doubt is not something to be avoided. Certainty is something to be avoided. Uh, The idea that you can have certainty in religious matters uh, indicates a kind of naivete. Who do you think you are? Uh, Doubt is good. Uh, The journey, the quest is what it's all about. The destination doesn't matter as much. Well, Uh, There are both hard indicators of change and soft indicators of change. What's especially controversial today, of course, is the claim that Jesus Christ is the only Lord, the only Savior for all humankind, and that only through Jesus can one find salvation or reconciliation with God. This has always been controversial. There's a sense in which that shouldn't surprise us. Uh, Think about the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Isn't this just what we ought to expect? That the gospel would be a scandal? It is true that the message of the cross is a stumbling block to those who are lost. For at the heart of the message of the cross is our utter spiritual bankruptcy, our inability to do anything. To merit favor with God. Uh, This cannot help but be offensive to human pride and our sense of self sufficiency. Uh, We cannot eliminate that. You eliminate that, you eliminate the cross. You eliminate the cross, you eliminate the heart of the gospel. But let's be sure that it really is the cross of Christ that offends people and not something else that has become attached to the message of the gospel. I think that too often people do not actually encounter the gospel itself because something else has become associated with the gospel, and it is this that they react against. So part of our task then in those cases is to get rid of anything extraneous that obscures the gospel, clarifying any misunderstandings and refuting mistaken assumptions about the gospel. Let the gospel speak for itself. Now, while there is a sense in which the gospel is foolishness, there's also a sense in which it is reasonable and sensible, and the unbeliever ought to accept it. Acts 26 is a fascinating passage. We find the Apostle Paul giving a defense before the Jewish king Agrippa. Agrippa ruled an area northeast of Judea, and Agrippa is there as a guest of Festus, the Roman governor. Paul recounts his earlier life as a Pharisee and a persecutor of followers of Jesus, and then he tells of his dramatic conversion experience on the way to Damascus. Transformed, Paul begins to declare to everyone that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds, and then he speaks of the necessity of Christ's suffering and rising from the dead, and Festus has had enough, he interrupts him and says, says, Paul, you are insane. Uh, I love the phrase, your great learning has driven you mad. (laughs) Be careful, right? Now, Paul's response, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king, King Agrippa, is familiar with these things. I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Acts 26, 24 to 26. The language Paul uses is striking. What I am saying is true and reasonable. It's not just foolishness. So speaking of the events around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Paul says that none of these things has escaped Agrippa's notice because this was not done in a corner. In other words, the events at the very heart of the gospel are not esoteric or hidden Uh, They're publicly accessible. They're well-known. Agrippa, you're aware of this, aren't you? It's helpful to make a distinction here between uh, truth and plausibility. And if you have the handouts, uh, I have the definitions there um, for these terms. Uh, Let's start with the concept of truth. Truth is a quality or a property of statements such that a statement is true if and only if the state of affairs to which it refers is as the statement asserts it to be. Now, that sounds more complicated than it is. This is our common sense, ordinary understanding of truth. So take the statement, uh, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in 1865. That statement is true if and only if Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in 1865. Otherwise, it's false. Understood in this way, truth does not change with time or location. Traveling from the U.S. to Canada doesn't change the truth status of a statement. Traveling to India doesn't change the truth status of a statement. Nor does the truth of a statement depend upon what you or I or anyone else happens to think about the statement. Now, plausibility, as I use the term, is different. The notion of plausibility is relative to a particular person or a group of people. So, a belief or a practice is plausible if it seems to a particular person or group to be reasonable or acceptable. So plausibility is relative to a particular contexts in a way in which truth is not. A particular belief can be plausible for one group at a particular time and still be false. Or it can be implausible and still be true. So take uh, the 11th century in Europe for example. Uh, most people believed the earth was flat. Okay? The idea that the earth is flat was eminently plausible for Europeans in the 11th century. That belief was also false. Take another example from today, belief in reincarnation or rebirth. For many people in India, Thailand, other parts of Asia, belief in rebirth or reincarnation is eminently plausible, makes a lot of sense. And if you want evidence for it, they'll provide evidence for it. Uh, For other groups uh, in the U.S., perhaps in Canada, it is not plausible. Well, it's either true or false. It's not true for people in India and false uh, for people in Iowa. It's either true or false. But it's plausible for one group, but not for another group. So that's the difference between plausibility and truth. It's important to get a uh, grasp of what uh, Peter Berger has called here plausibility structures. And uh, plausibility structures are the, uh, the circumstances or the factors which reinforce or support a particular belief or practice or value. And so these could include things like uh, one's family, uh, one's peers, uh, media, education, uh, past experiences, entertainment figures, etc., all of uh, those factors which go into reinforcing or supporting the uh, uh, apparent reasonableness of a particular belief or practice. Plausibility structures change over time and they vary with social and cultural contexts so that what is plausible at one time might not be plausible at a later time. The idea that Christianity is the one true religion was very plausible for Europeans in, let's say, the 12th or 13th century. Um, Not many people would have questioned that. Even in the early 20th century, uh, the idea that if there is a true religion, then probably it is Christianity, uh, was very plausible for many uh, Europeans and North Americans. Things have changed. The plausibility structures have changed. And so the idea that there is one true religion or one Lord and Savior for all humankind strikes many people today as just highly implausible. So what brought about this change? Um, We can't hope to do justice to the question, but let's just highlight a few things that have been at work over the past centuries, uh, eroding the plausibility in the idea that Uh, There can be one true religion or one true uh, gospel for all peoples. The uh, 16th through 18th centuries uh, was a time of just enormous upheaval and transition in Europe as uh, the old world, which had been dominated by Christendom, was fragmenting and the new world was beginning to emerge. let me just highlight a few things here. Uh, There was what's called a crisis in authority, And uh, the crisis in authority, crisis in religious authority, was prompted by a variety of things, including the Protestant Reformation. Now, we think of the Reformation in terms of theological doctrines of justification, uh, and we should. That's at the heart of the uh, Reformation. Uh, The Reformation also was a direct attack upon the reigning authority structure, uh, plausibility structure, if you want to use that uh, category, Of the Roman Church. And with the uh, Reformation and the aftermath of the Reformation, you had the questions about uh, who is really authoritative emerging. Um, Well, the Reformers say it's Scripture. All right, but the Reformers don't all agree on Scripture. So which Reformers? Uh, This was also a time of skepticism. Uh, The ancient skeptical writings from the uh, Romans and the Greeks were being uh, reintroduced to Europe at this time. The voyages of discovery. I always get a kick out of that phrase because it sounds as if peoples in Africa, Asia, Latin America didn't know where they were until they were discovered. Uh, These are voyages of discovery for the Europeans. Uh, The voyages of discovery bring back all kinds of reports of new cultures, new peoples, new ways of living and uh, this fed into skepticism and relativism. In fact, there was a time when the Catholic Church banned what were called travel uh, books. These would be books written by uh, explorers and voyagers, adventurers. Uh, They were talking about these strange peoples they encountered in the different parts of the world. Why did the church not like that? because it uh, raised the specter of diversity. There's not just one way of living and doing things. Uh, And they saw that as a direct threat to the authority of the church. The Enlightenment in the 18th century, of course, feeds into this as well. uh, You're well aware of the Enlightenment. Let me just make one quick comment here. The Enlightenment is often portrayed as a time of uh, uh, obsessive... Um, emphasis upon reason and its powers. Um, yes, that was there. It was also a time of tremendous skepticism. David Hume, perhaps the prototypical Enlightenment figure, was a deep skeptic. Uh, his writings systematically undermined the idea that reason can provide uh, uh, determinative answers to most of the questions that we're after. Um, Reason was used to attack the church. And so that's why we have this image of the Enlightenment as so obsessed with reason. Um, But the legacy of the Enlightenment is deep skepticism. Uh, And this, too, uh, works against the plausibility structures uh, of the gospel. A third set of factors comes from uh, what we today would call the uh, colonialism, colonialism, imperialism, globalization, there's just a whole set of issues and uh, movements and factors going on in the 18th and especially then into the 19th century. Uh, People become much more aware of the different cultures and peoples around the world. Uh, This is also coinciding with the Protestant missionary thrust in the 19th century. And the relationship between the Protestant missionary movement and uh, economic, political, military, colonialism is a very complicated uh, story. Uh, It's not quite as uh, benign and innocent as uh, many of us evangelicals would like to believe. On the other hand, uh, it's not quite as easy and simplistic in identification as many of the critics of the modern missionary movement would like to believe. It's a very complicated, vexed story. Uh, But that also tended to erode confidence in the uniqueness of Christianity as a one true religion. As you move into the 20th century, uh, migration patterns change. People travel. Uh, People become personally aware of uh, those who are religiously different. And uh, they begin to discover Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, Jains, you fill in the blank. They're not quite what I had imagined they were. Uh, Many of them are very intelligent. They're good people. They love their families. They work hard. Some of them have studied the Bible. They reject it. What's going on? And so there becomes a very um, disquieting sense of, wow, maybe we've been fed a bill of goods here about followers of other religions. Maybe it's not quite what we had been led to believe. Let me finish here very quickly with the notion of secularization, uh, because uh, that's such an important concept, and yet it's such, I think, uh, a misunderstood concept. I've uh, separated out three terms on the handout there for you, secularization, secularism, and the secular. Secularization itself refers to an empirically observable historical process of social, intellectual, And cultural change such that traditional religious patterns are abandoned or modified in significant ways. Now there's a lot of debate over just what these changes amount to, where are they happening, are they happening, are they not happening, Uh, but the important point for our purposes here is if it is occurring at all, secularization is a process of social transformation that in principle we should be able to discern by looking at history and observing societies. So it's not an ideology, it's not a worldview, it's it's a thesis about change in society in the modern world. Uh, Whether it is happening is an empirical question. One's personal feelings about this process of change, that's a different matter. And um, it's interesting to me in classes when I'll have students from other parts of the world Americans look upon secularization as bad. Secularization is something we need to fight. And uh, an Egyptian, a Japanese, a Thai, someone from India will say, we want more secularization. We don't want less. Uh, So secularization is a process of social change away from a dominant uh, religio-political framework. And uh, if it is happening, you ought to be able to uh, find empirical evidence in favor of that. Secularism, on the other hand, is a way of thinking and living, it's an ideology or a worldview which is opposed to religious commitments. So, secularism is often understood as maintaining that this world is all there is, there's no transcendent reality. Now, does secularism necessarily flow from secularization? That's a very controversial thesis, and uh, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Um, now, the word secular is, is another word, and it's used in many different ways. Minimally, the secular is whatever is distinguished from the sacred or the religious. And uh, so, in, in early modern Europe, um, education, medicine, health care, uh, the political structures began to be separated out from the uh, um, religious uh, framework associated with Christendom. And so there you began to speak about secular holdings of land or secular education and so on. Secu- the secular does not necessarily uh, coincide with secularism. Uh, there are other uses of secular as well. Uh, so a key component of uh, secularization is the idea of differentiation, resulting in, for example, a clear separation of institutions and education, health care and government from religious legitimation and authority. And where that is happening, you say it is secular. We can acknowledge differentiation in this respect without necessarily embracing secularism as an ideology. And so a secular education or a secular government need not be hostile to particular religious traditions. Uh, Impartiality would be the ideal that that kind of a secular education or a secular government would be seeking. Now, secularization itself, as you know, back in the 1960s and 70s, had a very strong thesis. Modernization inevitably results in the decline of religion. And so we can expect religion just to wither away. That has not happened, and that understanding of secularization is pretty well rejected today. Uh, 35 years ago, James Davis and Hunter quipped that at the heart of secularization is the idea that being religious is not as easy as it used to be. Uh, now, he's, he was kind of reflecting the older theory there. In the intervening decades, we've seen that lots of people in modern societies remain highly religious or highly spiritual. So, I think we need to modify that a little bit, and I suggest that what the idea of secularization is trying to capture is the fact that being religious in traditional ways is not as easy as it used to be. So, people are often still religious, but they are religious in different ways, as a uh, deliberate moving beyond the traditional Peter Berger uh, was an early defender of the classical secularization thesis. He's one of these very unusual, uh, prominent scholars who, after 30, 40 years of uh, a very successful career, uh, simply comes out and says, look, a lot of what I wrote uh, back in the 60s and 70s was simply false. And uh, that takes a lot of self-confidence uh, for an academic. But Berger did that and the late 90s, and uh, said we need to rethink how we think about secularization. He didn't abandon the concept entirely, Uh, but here's a quote from him. Our main mistake back then was that we misunderstood pluralism as just one factor supporting secularization. In fact, pluralism, that is the coexistence of different worldviews and value systems in the same society, is the major change brought about by modernity for the place of religion, both in the minds of individuals and in the institutional order. And uh, for Berger, that kind of pluralism or coexisting has a uh, destabilizing and relativizing effect upon people. Berger again. Pluralism relativizes and thereby undermines many of the certainties by which human beings used to live. Put differently, certainty becomes a scarce commodity, End quote. You are perhaps familiar with the work of Charles Taylor, uh, your own philosopher and historian. I find Taylor enormously insightful and helpful. Uh, his massive book, A Secular Age, You know, if you could winnow out 300 pages out of that and uh, cut it down a bit. Uh, But it is tremendously insightful. And uh, his take on secularization is, the thesis of secularization is trying to get at this particular question. Why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God in, say, the year 1500 in our Western society, while in the year 2000? Many of us find this not only easy, but even inescapable. And uh, the shift that Taylor is speaking about here consists, among other things, this is his language now, uh, of a move from a society where belief in God is unchallenged and indeed unproblematic to one in which it is understood to be one option among others and frequently not the easiest to embrace. Belief in God is no longer axiomatic. There are alternatives. Taylor comes at it from the side of uh, the history of ideas and uh, philosophy. Berger comes at it as a sociologist. They both end up in very much the same place. Uh, Because of secularization, the taken for granted nature of religious commitment is gone. You might continue to be religious, but you are religious with the very conscious awareness that you could be something else. There are other alternatives out there. Well, uh, let me conclude with a question that I think this leaves us with in the church. Uh, I'll come back to this again in the last talk on, uh, this afternoon. But given the kind of changes we're talking about here, given the shifting plausibility structures, given the shift in plausibility uh, in how people approach the idea of there being one Lord and Savior, one message, one religion that is true for everybody, the following question, I think, is one that we have to wrestle with. Given the many religious and non-religious alternatives available today, Why should someone accept the claims of the Christian faith as true? Why the gospel and not some other alternative? Um, Those doing mission in India, China, Japan, uh, in the 18th and 19th, 20th centuries, that's a question they had to confront. You're bringing us something different. Why should we accept it? Uh, Increasingly, that's a reality right here in North America. We've got lots of alternatives. Why should I accept what you have to say as true? I don't know if we have time for questions or if we should just uh, break at this point and take questions after the second one. Uh, one or two comments or questions if you, if you would like to uh, interact for a few minutes. And I will point because I don't know names, I'm sorry. I'm- Yes, good. I've been uh, recently uh, reading quite a bit from Vaishal uh, Mangaladi who has come from the Indian culture and become a Christian. Yes. And he's, uh, he,
0: say, he says uh, in states that, uh, you know, the start of universities was uh, actually for foreign ministry. This was a, a Protestant institution to equip the pastors. And uh, they had to study, of course, theology, but also literature and language and the sciences and all these things. But later, um, in the Christian <coughs> Christian culture that we lived in, we've said, oh, no, actually, most of that is secular. So we can yeah. give that to the secular institutions. I'm not sure if I'm getting into the fourth presentation, but yeah. uh, what do you feel about this? Is this true? And is there a way, or should we reclaim some of that?
3: Wow. Um. Now, uh, I've read some of what he's written. Was he talking about the uh, universities of the Indian context or just more generally coming out of Europe, North America, then spreading because you have lots of mission schools uh, starting in not only India but China, Japan, which then eventually become uh, large secular universities, uh, repeating the same story we have here. Um... Every institution has to determine its own identity and its own calling. And so, you know, there's not, my view, there's not one model that fits every institution for every context and purpose. But let me speak more broadly to the idea of separating out secular knowledge, secular education from uh, Bible theology and uh, that kind of a bifurcation. Um, I find that very unhealthy. And on the one hand, nobody can be encyclopedic. We're all limited. And we have different callings. uh, We have different interests. So the point isn't that all of us have to become, you know, Michelangelo, Renaissance uh, thinkers about everything. Um, But a sharp divide between these are Christian subjects and then these are secular subjects, I find, I find that unhealthy. Um, for one thing, you can't sustain that in today's world. Um, if you have children, you know how this works, right? If you tell children, don't go into that room, don't do this, what's gonna happen? They'll go into the room, you know, they're looking, well, why can't I go in there? <laughs> Um, so if you write off a, a body of knowledge, or you say, this is a domain of inquiry which we should not be uh, looking at or studying or, or bothered with, uh, that'll just make it more attractive to certain groups. Um, but, but even on a more deeper level, a deeper level, there, there's an integration to knowledge and understanding that I think we need to recover. And uh, so... Uh, to understand god 's revelation in scripture, uh, we also want to understand the world that God has made and uh, as best we can, put the two together. Um, now, our language gets in the way oftentimes and and the word secular is such a problematic term, which is why I wanted to define it in those three ways: if you label something as secular then at least for American evangelicals, it's immediately suspect and it's off limits. And be careful, don't touch it. Um, And so I want to get away from that kind of bifurcation. Uh, I don't know if that's what Mangalwadi was trying to get at or if that's where your question is going. Uh, Now, again, every institution has its own calling, its own identity, its own purpose. You can't do everything. And so you do pick and focus on certain things to the exclusion of others but I guess I'm speaking more about an attitude here which says uh, we have God's revelation. God has spoken. Uh, we don't need to be nervous or worried about exploring the world God has made. Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there we're not going to be happy with and we're going to disagree with. That's okay. Um, is this getting at the issue? It's an ongoing tension and struggle. Maybe Is there time for one more or should we break it here? One more quick one, a nice, easy one. That was a fastball up and inside. And the historical model would be what now? Uh, looking at, uh,
2: I'll take the humanities, uh, starting at the beginning. Um, obviously, we have to look at it through a, a Western lens. A Western
3: yeah. Lens, but would you say then the answer is to look at it more historically? Um yeah, wow. These are good questions. These are Dean questions. Yeah. Um, Let me take one example, not because I'm I'm an Edwards fan. Uh, In fact, I'm I'm a critic of Jonathan Edwards in many ways. Um, American evangelicals need to be reminded the man owned slaves. That's significant. Um, But he had a curiosity um, that caused him to, uh, you know, study botany and uh, he wanted to live with the Native Americans. He learned their language. Um, he was amassing information about uh, cultures and peoples around the world from uh, travelers and missionaries. He, he he had this insatiable curiosity. And that, I think, was very healthy. And, and what he was trying to do, he died very young before he could do this, but it seems what he was trying to do was to put together some kind of an encyclopedic synthesis uh, as a response to the deist uh, in Europe. Uh, This is how an integrative, uh, Trinitarian, robust uh, Christian theism can interact with the modern world, at his time, the modern world. Uh, That's what, not following how he went down all the contours, but that kind of integrative curiosity, I think, is healthy. I think our structures, uh, let me speak about my own school, Trinity, our, our structures often work against that. We have separate departments, we have guild specializations for, uh, you know, not just New Testament studies, but Pauline studies. And um, the structures often don't encourage the kind of integrative, holistic uh, curiosity that I think is healthy. So uh, whether that's a return to a historical model or somehow carving out a new model for the 21st century, I'm not sure. I suspect it's, it's the latter. And it's, it's, it's your generation. You guys will be doing this. Uh, but think in creative ways. How, you know, we have God's revelation. All right. What does it mean to live as recipients of God's revelation in the year 2020 In Toronto, Um, that's a deeply theological question, but that will take you into all kinds of other areas apart from just biblical exegesis and systematic theology. And maybe that's time for a break.
0: One of the things that uh, Heritage Bible College is uh, focused on is the idea of integration, because we have a number of courses that we call general studies, and they are supposed to be helpful to us as pastors, so that a BTH student actually is learning sociology and psychology and so on, certainly from a Christian perspective, but we are doing that with the, gu- with the idea, the goal of integration. Because you're going to be ministering to people who are psychologists and sociologists and engineers and doctors and so on. And having some knowledge of what they do, but also being able to integrate our faith into that is very important for pastors. So uh, Bible colleges in general, not just heritage, do this. And uh, I believe this is important. Although you'll get a number of students that will say, why do I have to take that course if I want to be a pastor? And we have to go through the rigmarole of trying to explain it. As I'm doing it now, and Dr. Netlin has helpfully encouraged. I'd like to ask Ken McDonald to come forward at this time. He is with Parasource, and he just wants to have a few words.
4: Well, good morning. It's always a pleasure to be here for the Ministry Leadership Day here at Heritage, and it's always great to bring resources to help you uh, students who are studying, have been there. I did my three years, four years in, in the States, in college, so we get the importance of having material to put into your hands, especially material that's cheap. Uh, and things you can afford uh, while you're going through college. So we've tried to uh, uh, just custom everything to, this, uh, to the book table, to the college, and to this ministry, uh, ministry uh, day. We have Dr. Netland's books here. Uh, if, if there's any books you, Dr. Netland, think is important for them to have in their hands, please be feel free to, to come by the book table and grab what you want and, and push those. Um, we are Parasaurus, we used to be David C. Cook, Canada. We are now fully Canadian. As of two years ago, we felt it was necessary to buy ourselves out from the United States and uh, be a fully Canadian company to serve our Canadian charges from a Canadian level. And uh, so we like to know that. If we run out of anything, we'll order it for you, ship it to you for free. Uh, and we will be closing after the last break, which is around three o'clock today. Uh, we also have a loyalty academic program that we've just started with our company. So those who are students and professors, uh, you want to come by and grab this card. You can use this to get an additional amount off your your, your purchases with us. We're trying to help you. And uh, also, we are doing a giveaway. When I was in college, I always loved the word free. Uh, and so we are giving away about $200 worth of books um, in a basket to one person here. Uh, so hopefully you can come by. I'd love to meet you. I'm your rep. Uh, we're here to make sure you're well taken care of and making sure you get the best pricing here in Canada. Thank you for this time.
0: Thank you, Ken. Go and buy some books. All right, we'll have a break now and we will come back at quarter to 11. Thank you.